Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We'll be doing some page turning here in a little bit. Some of you might be doing some screen swiping. Just as long as you have God's Word open would be excellent. Let's start with uh, prayer. Father, uh, thank you so much for this time together that we get to look at your word today. And uh, I ask that you would make it a fruitful time together, one that is profitable for our faith, that we would be mutually encouraged. Pray that you would uh, help me to, to speak truthfully and that this word would, would transform us so that we're turning away from evil ways to, to follow our King who gave himself for us and who continues to lead us in truth. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If there is uh, one thing that uh, world history has taught us, it is this. Violence and lies are the primary weapons of evil kingdoms. A man publishes his Mein Kampf, argues that one race is superior to others, and then resorts to killing off millions to have things his way. Adolf Hitler. A man wants his USSR to prevail, so he manipulates the economy and starves seven and a half million people who would like freedom from his tyranny, Joseph Stalin. A man wants control of Cambodia, so he knocks off a third of the population with malnutrition and forced labor camps, all under the disguise of agricultural reform, Pol Pot. Men want power in Rwanda, so they dehumanize an entire people group with propaganda and then watch the public slay them for three months. The Hutu militia. Violence and lies are the primary weapons of evil kingdoms. Now, I seriously doubt any of us who are sane would support such heinous brutality, such stomach-churning wickedness, but we would be mistaken to think that such power-hungry kingdoms don't illustrate the evil present in all of us who are born in Adam. Think of it, sinful anger Impatience, complaining, hateful attitudes, cutting remarks, manipulation, half-truths, gossip. The heart of evil is the desire to be God, the desire to make ourselves the center of the universe. Others must serve me, and if they don't, somebody's going to get hurt. Not all sin manifests itself in the degree of public brutality of the regimes I mentioned. But sin is sin, let's face it, 
And it all comes from the desire to be on the throne at the expense of others. If this is the natural state of humanity, as the Bible says it is, and and history proves again and again that it is, we are doomed. We are doomed not just because our evil desires will continue ruling us. We are doomed not just because history will keep repeating itself with power-hungry people and more genocide and bigger bombs. More importantly, we're doomed before God. He made us to rule and to relate to one another with, with, with absolute care and peace under His kingship and, and not our own kingship. And He has appointed a judgment with severe consequences for doing things our own way. He will not tolerate our treason forever. So then, where do we turn for deliverance, for for hope, for a future? God has answered that question in the Bible. His Word tells us that there lives a king who is not evil, but wholly good. He is not a tyrant, but a servant. He doesn't vie for power. He already has all power. And He doesn't use His power the way the rest of mankind uses its power. His reign and His kingdom is altogether alien to this evil world. He builds His kingdom not with violence and lies. He builds His kingdom with self-sacrifice and truth. And that's where we're heading this morning. To this alien king whose name is Jesus Christ. He builds His kingdom with self-sacrifice and truth. We find ourselves in the middle of Jesus' journey to the cross. He, he has given himself into the hands of the authorities. He, he has been tried before Annas and Caiaphas, and, and one of his closest followers, Peter, just denied him. And that brings us to verse 28 this morning. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now stop there. We'll read more in a minute, but let's stop there. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We should know what these little remarks mean by now. These little remarks throughout John, as John is telling the story, they help us understand the the salvation that Jesus brings for us. 
John wants us to make connections to, to the rest of the story he's been telling, the, the rest of his gospel leading up to this point. And, and it's by making these connections that we, that we see the first way Jesus builds his kingdom. He builds his kingdom through self-sacrifice. Now, by saying Jesus builds his kingdom, I don't mean to imply that he somehow isn't king already. He's very much a king, as we'll soon see in his exchange with Pilate. But his kingdom isn't one that's fully established yet on earth. It must be built. He must populate his kingdom with citizens. In fact, his kingdom wouldn't have any citizens at all were it not for his coming. All that exists in the world are rebels against his kingdom. That's, that's what the whole of humanity is. That's, that's, that's what it means to be born in Adam. Born enemies of God. Just look at how his own people are treating him. All he's done is good for them, but now he finds even his own kindred manipulating political powers to execute him in a particular way. What accusation do you bring against this man? What do they say? If this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. There's no charge in that. There's no accusation. These people have nothing on Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. Only good, but they oppose him anyway. And if they can manipulate Pilate, if they can get him to listen to them long enough so that they can maneuver things to get him on a cross, then they will. It's a stunning picture of what we are by nature, that, that apart from God's grace opening our eyes, we'll do what we can to bump off the true king. And that's not just true for the Jews here. It's true for the whole world. They're all together gathered against Jesus. Jews and Gentiles alike, as Psalm 2 tells us as well. We are by nature God's enemies. So if Jesus is going to build a kingdom of people, people who love him and follow him, follow him and, and really enjoy his, his, his rule, he must break in and fundamentally change them. He, he must deliver them from evil and make them citizens of his kingdom and, and subject to his rule. But, but he doesn't do this by brute force. He doesn't do this by coming and imposing some sort of Sharia law. He does it by giving himself up, by self-sacrifice. He, he does it by taking up a cross. Roman execution of all things. It's a kind of death only reserved for the scumbags of society. Romans had several ways of killing people, but crucifixion was the worst. They, they wouldn't even crucify their own citizens because of how wretched and shameful it was. And yet John's note in verse 32 seems to be saying all this was happening according to plan. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Self-sacrifice by crucifixion. Why this route? Why didn't the Jews just take him out in the streets like they did to Stephen later on and stone him to death? Why were things unfolding this way through Roman crucifixion? 
they're happening this way because this is how God saves us and, and brings us into his kingdom. Here's where I want you to start turning some pages with me because there are three times Jesus foretells his death in the way John is speaking of here. And in those three places, Jesus refers to himself as being lifted up. That is, being lifted up on the cross. It's basically, uh, being lifted up is basically a euphemism in John's gospel to, to the crucifixion uh, of Jesus. And, and in each of these places, these, these three places, we also find three massive problems separating us from Jesus' kingdom. Uh, separating us from enjoying his peaceful rule. We're sentenced to eternal death, we're stuck in our sin, and we're subject to the devil. We're sentenced to eternal death. Meaning God's wrath remains on us because of our sin. We, we rightly deserve His condemnation for pre- pre- preserve, uh, preferring evil. There's a death sentence over us forever. We're also stuck in our sin, meaning we can't escape sin on our own. We carry sin with us. It, it separates us from God. There, there's nothing we can do to get away from sin's control. Sin will even, it's going to even follow us to the grave and and be the reason for our torment in eternity. And then we're also subject to the devil. The devil uses this this death sentence and our own sin against us to to blackmail us and uh, that we we might fear him and support his kingdom agenda and do his bidding. So with those three problems in mind, we we go now to John chapter 3. Can turn there with me, John chapter three. First place Jesus mentions being lifted up. Jesus says this in verse fourteen of John chapter three. It's page eight eighty eight if you're using a pew Bible. Verse fourteen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You you remember the story, right? That Israel sins against God. He sends serpents and the serpents bite the people and people are perishing all around the camp in Israel. And Moses cries out. The Lord provides a way of escape from death and death because of their sin. And that way is that Moses lifts up a serpent on a pole in the wilderness. You look to the serpent, the sting of death was removed. And you lived. And so we get here, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, think of the death sentence there, should not perish, but have eternal life. So right there we see that Jesus, by being lifted up on a cross, is, is going to remove the sentence of eternal death for all who believe. We all deserve to perish because of sin. But God is going to lift Jesus up on a cross and when we look to Him, when we, when we believe in Him, the bite of eternal death will be removed. We won't perish, but we will gain eternal life. Now look at chapter 8 with me. Turn to chapter 8. This is chapter 8, verse 23. 
So it's the second time Jesus mentions being lifted up. You, he says, uh, the verse 23, you, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So again, he, here's the alien king right here. He's not of this world. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And then verses uh, 34 to 36 go on to explain a bit more on, on how this Son of Man sets people free from sin. He redeems them. How does He redeem them? By being lifted up. So the problem is we're stuck in our sins, but we're redeemed when Jesus, the Son of Man, is lifted up on a cross. And as uh, verse 36 says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, redeemed. Then one more, chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus is saying all of this in relation to his death, which is just on the horizon. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, that's the devil, be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, there it is again, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In other words, they're not going to be subject to the devil's kingdom anymore. He will rescue them. They will be coming. They will be gathering in from the nations. I will draw all people to myself. They're going to freely run to Jesus because of his work, because of his being lifted up on the cross. And then verse 33 tells us this. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Which means we should think, oh, so every time he's been saying, lift it up, lift it up, lift it up, he's been telling us how he's going to die, by crucifixion. And that crucifixion would accomplish, would, would solve these three problems. Separating us from Jesus' kingdom. Sentence of eternal death, removed. We're stuck in our sin, redeemed. Subject to the devil, rescued. And when, all, all when Jesus is lifted up on the cross. Now, if we want to know how a cross in particular achieves these three things versus another kind of death, like stoning, we must turn to one other place in Scripture, namely Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 13. Let's get a little bit of context. Let's go to verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is our state. We disobey God, we're cursed. And it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When you see the word tree, you need to think of cross. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And why? What's the purpose? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is how Jesus adds people to his kingdom, through a cross. He he doesn't come to curse us by imposing more law. He comes to obey the law as one of us in order to become the curse in place of us. He's perfectly innocent. That's what our passage is going to continue to tell us in John's Gospel. Every time they bring up a charge, it's totally groundless. The Jews can't bring a single charge against him that holds any water. He's committed no crime to deserve such a death. Yet he chose the wretched shame of Roman crucifixion so all the visible and invisible world, including Satan himself, would see that the curse we deserve because of sin fell on him instead. Jesus wasn't the criminal. We were the criminals. He wasn't cursed. We were cursed. But he became the curse for us. He bore the wrath of God and so removes the death sentence from us. He pays our penalty for for sin and so redeems us from sin's power. And with that done, with the death sentence removed and our sins taken care of, He rescues us from the devil's blackmailing threats. And because of all that, we can then become part of His kingdom. Simply by trusting in what He's done for us on the cross. There's, There's no more condemnation separating separating God from us, and there's no more sin separating us from God, and the kingdom of darkness no longer holds sway over our soul. We run into His kingdom as free and new citizens. It's beautiful what our King does for us. And yet it is so alien to a world that craves power at the expense of others. I'll build my kingdom at your expense. That's what the flesh says. That's what the flesh wants. It's what it craves. But that's not what our king does. He lays down his life for us. We'll come back to that in a minute. But but now look at the second way Jesus builds his kingdom. Jesus builds his kingdom by the truth. Jesus builds his kingdom by the truth. Continue in verse 33. Pilate, uh, to the Jews' surprise, calls off, calls their bluff a couple of times. I mean, he gave them the band of soldiers in the be- to begin with to arrest Jesus. Now, you go try him. I don't want to deal with this. But they finally convince him to question Jesus. So Pilate entered his headquarters, verse 33 says, again, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? 
Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Through this exchange with with Pilate, we learn a couple of things about Jesus' kingdom. First off, his kingdom isn't of this world. Meaning it doesn't have its origins in this world. It's not a kingdom uh, that, that uh, the world could ever produce by, by its own political power and, and military force. It's an alien kingdom. It doesn't rise up from within. It, it breaks in from without. There's no need for Pilate to fear pil- political revolt. Otherwise, Jesus' disciples would have, would have already been fighting. And the only one who did raise his sword, Peter, Jesus rebuked. Jesus doesn't build his kingdom with violence. We've already seen that he builds it by willingly laying down his life to serve others. But but we also find that Jesus' kingdom is one of truth. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now the truth that Jesus mentions isn't merely propositional truth as opposed to falsehood and, and lying. It can mean that, and it certainly does mean that in in many places in John's gospel. But but that's not so much what Jesus says he was born for and entered the world for. He's working with categories far more sweeping than that. Truth in John's gospel is often associated with God's final and climactic revelation in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, for instance, chapter 1, verse 17, kicks off the gospel. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The point isn't that God's truth didn't exist before Jesus' coming, but that Jesus is the true fulfillment of all that preceded His coming. And so we see him revealed as, for example, the true light, the true Passover, the true temple, the true bread from heaven, the true vine. In other words, he reveals the truth about God and God's kingdom. To see and to know Jesus is to see the very truth about God's kingdom unfolding as it breaks in on the earth. He's speaking in terms of ultimacy in God's self-revealing work throughout history. In fact, at one point in John's Gospel, he straight up says, I am the truth. Or, or here in our text, verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Talk about ultimacy. It's a staggering claim. Can you imagine any one of us making that assertion? You're of the truth insofar as you listen to me. It's at the height of arrogance. Others who have said things like this start cults. 
or sway entire nations with their ideology. So when you hear Jesus saying such things, you've really got to decide. Is Jesus in a category with all the other arrogant lunatics? Or is he really Lord and God? If he's Lord and God, then we owe him everything. We owe him all that we are. We owe him all of our worship. His words confront us at the highest level. He's not someone that you can come to and have a middle ground. You're not neutral when it comes to Jesus. His words don't allow you to be neutral. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You don't listen to Jesus. You don't follow Him. You don't bow at His feet. You're not of the truth. His words confront us at the highest level. And that's how He gathers citizens into His kingdom, actually. We've already seen that He dies for them. But the question is, are you listening to His voice? If not, you're not of the truth. You remain outside of His kingdom. But if you're listening to Him... You're of the truth. You're welcomed into His kingdom. You become a citizen. You start embracing His values. You start looking at the world as He looks at the world. You start applying His words to your relationships with one another. You start thinking His thoughts after Him. You start loving the very things He loves. And you start hating the very things He hates. Everything about you now belongs to Him. You're not your own, but walk according to His order and His counsel and His example. Such that what ends up happening is that the alien king builds an alien kingdom by making alien citizens. People so in love with him that they look strange to the world, alien to the world. And with that said, I want us to leave with a few things about what sort of people that ought to make us. If Jesus builds his kingdom by self-sacrifice and truth, if this, if this is the king we've sworn allegiance to, if this is the king who, who is ruling the kingdom we're now part of, then what sort of citizens ought, to we, ought we to be? Well, first of all, it means we embrace our king's cross to serve others. We embrace our king's cross to serve others. This is no more than what Jesus said in chapter 13, verses Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you, love, you also are to love one another. How is it that He loves us? Well, He loves us by self-sacrifice, by, by taking up a cross, and, and we are called to follow in His footsteps. The way of the cross will make you alien to this world. The, the, the world craves power and recognition at the expense of others, but our King has shown us a better way. The only way. So what might embracing the King's cross look like? What might it look like for us husbands? We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. This is the King's charge to all husbands. But what will it look like? All of us are in different places. Men. But it may look like this. It may mean you need to crucify the desire to focus on your wife's failures 
in order to serve her as the fellow heir of grace that God says she is in Holy Scripture. It may mean you need to crucify your irritation and your temper in difficult circumstances in order to serve her with prayer and the promises of God. It may mean you need to crucify your complaining attitude in order to serve her with thanksgiving for all that God is, in fact, doing in her. It may mean you need to crucify the way you lead her to watch all sorts of movies full of sex and violence in order to serve your marriage with prayer and reading Scripture. When you get home and she's exhausted, embracing the King's Cross may mean, will mean, you don't ask, what's for dinner? But how can I help? How can I serve? What do you need? I speak from experiences with, from experience with these examples, but I want to say this, these sacrifices, husbands, will only happen if you're getting to know the king himself. Or what about those of you who, by God's providence or gifting, are single? Are single. What might embracing self-sacrifice look like for you? I honestly had a hard time coming up with things here, but, but not because I didn't know what to say, but because everything I found myself saying, our singles were already doing. The majority of our singles are great examples to us in taking up the cross. So take these for what they are. They won't apply to all of you. Take these as a way maybe to fan into flame some of the things that you're already doing. Singles, it it may mean that that you're busy with so many things that you lose sight of your service on the right things. Like the brothers and sisters in this church body that you agreed to love when you became a member. Taking up your cross may mean you need to die to some of your selfish ambitions, whether that's hours in World of Warcraft or hours in the gym behind a mirror. And doing this in order to give undivided devotion to the Lord and His church. Uh, maybe you're, you're one that already struggles with, with some level of loneliness. But over time, that loneliness has turned you so inward that you find it hard to even think creatively about serving others because they're not really serving you either. The way of the cross addresses both sides, doesn't it? It tells us to put down some of our own preferences and our own tight schedules to draw near to you, to include you. And it tells you to draw near to us when we are still blind and inconsiderate. We need regular reminders from from your sacrifices that Christ is sufficient in all things and that marriage isn't an end in itself, but a pointer to a kingdom in which men and women aren't given in marriage except to Jesus Christ. 
Membership in Christ's kingdom doesn't hinge on the question, are you married, but are you bearing a cross? And for others of us, the, the cross will come just as, a, as a jolting check to the manner in which we serve others as well. For instance, is it your habit to serve others only in contexts in which you will be recognized? You're serving a whole ton, but it's only because those t- things are building your resume. Think about this. Especially the students. When we pursue service in this way, only to be praised for our service and and recognized for our service, we've actually perverted the King's cross. The cross calls us to serve others for God's sake and not our own, and even more, to embrace the boring everyday opportunities to serve others who could never pay us back. I also think many of you should apply the cross to the way you interact on social media. How might the cross affect your Facebook posts and Twitter outlets? Our culture says the way up in our world is to be louder about ourselves and our own lives and our own likes. The way up is harsh and outspoken about every little news publication. We need to die to this mentality in social media I'm not saying social media is evil or wrong. I've got a Twitter account. Still learning how to use it. I'm just saying we need to die to the mentality that's centered on self. And you might even check your cravings by by going a week or two without posting anything or checking anything. We need to die to making offhand remarks, too, in our Facebook posts that lack any consideration for the body of Christ here or the body of Christ at large, to whom we're united. And positively speaking, shouldn't we all use our communication tools to serve the king's agenda instead of our own? We need to put down the iPhone at lunch to get to know other employees. We need to die to our infatuation with social media to get to know each other actually face-to-face. Some of the things you post on Facebook, you wouldn't say face-to-face. That's cowardly. To show hospitality, we must have people in our homes face-to-face. And we must not just assume that she isn't lonely or he isn't lonely because her Facebook page is full. I could go on, but the point I hope is clear. All of us must take the self-sacrifice of our King and imitate Him in our marriages and imitate Him in our homes and imitate Him in our relationships to one another in the church and imitate Him in our workplaces. Jesus put it this way elsewhere. If, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, daily, and follow me. Something else we learn from our passage. We, we listen to our king's voice as peoples of truth. We must listen to our king's voice as people of truth. People of the truth. There are many competing voices in our world. 
vying for our attention. There are many noble voices who have very good things to say. There are even solid Christian voices who speak well of Christ and and point people to Him. But there's only one king you will answer to on Judgment Day. Do you know His voice? His voice is the only one that matters. I don't mean His audible voice. As if to say he speaks from the clouds. I mean the voice of his spirit-inspired words written and preserved on the pages of Scripture. This is how he speaks to us today since the coming of Jesus Christ. In many of various ways he's spoken beforehand to our fathers. But now he has spoken to us by a son. Hebrews says This is how he speaks to us, through a son, a son whose revelation is preserved for us in Scripture. Are these the words you listen to and pursue as your utmost prize? There isn't anybody else who reveals God as Jesus does. There isn't anybody else who knows you as well as Jesus does. There isn't anybody else who who loves you as much as Jesus does. Does Nobody else who will lead you into the pleasures of eternal life, as Jesus will do. He was born and came into the world to reveal God to us. And so I would encourage you to open your Bibles more often, to to get alone with God and and pour over the pages of Scripture. You can't listen to His voice if you're never setting your eyes on His written Word. Set aside time to get the Bible open. I know... It is, I'm saying that with total recognition that it is difficult for some of you with kids running around at six o'clock in the morning, high energy, right? And you're trying to find a moment alone with God. You know, Sarah Wesley, Susanna Wesley, I'm sorry, what was it? There's so many kids running around. What she does, she throws the apron over her head and she tells her kids, my apron's over my head, don't mess with me. This is me and God time. She's training the children of what's most important, listening to my king's voice. So find the opportunities, work them in, do it with the kids if if you are able. And soak in it, Not, not just to know truth in the abstract, but to actually know the person of Christ Himself. He is the truth. He he is the ultimate goal of all God's revelation. He did not come into the world to give us a proposition. Though His teaching definitely includes hundreds of propositions. He came to give give us Himself, a person. He redeemed and rescued you, not to leave you alone in silence. He is a good shepherd. He is a perfect bride, bride, bridegroom, and he delights in speaking words of truth over his people and to his bride. And then let his word compel you to obedience. We are people of the truth. We're, we're characterized by this, who he is, everything he is. Which will mean our lives exemplify the very truth that Jesus himself displays. His word must affect everything we do from the big plans we make to the microscopic things we put in our bodies. 
His truth must affect the way we speak in content and in tone. His truth must affect uh, the way we listen with patience and charity. His truth must affect the goals we set for our children and the types of things we pray for one another. His truth must affect the the way we work diligently as unto the Lord and, and not merely to please man. But none of this obedience is, is, is out in the abstract. It's, it's all aimed at Christ. It's all aimed at enjoying more of Him, more of who He is. It's not to congratulate ourselves as, as good Christ followers. It's so that people see the King in all that we do. So that people glorify Jesus in all that we do. So that there's no part of our lives that suggests to the world, our King's not that great. He doesn't have my best interests in mind. He does, he's not telling the truth. Everything about us should, should bear witness that all he says is truth. And truth of the highest sort. Truth that leads to salvation. Truth that leads to a relationship with God. Truth that opens our eyes to the unfolding of God's kingdom on earth. Third, we, speak the, we spread the king's truth to make more citizens. We spread the king's truth to make more citizens. There's an invitation in Jesus' words. It goes along with all the other whoever's, whosoever's throughout John's gospel and the everyone's. Whoever believes, whoever drinks, everyone who does this and whatnot. And, and, and here we see, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, the obvious point here is that Pilate doesn't listen to Jesus' voice, and neither do any of the Jewish, Jewish authorities. And so the, the point is, they're false. They're in the wrong, not Jesus. How do we know, he's, how do we know they're in the wrong? Well, they're not listening to Jesus' voice. But the point pressed home on the reader is, who do you think is true? Who do you think is true? Pilate's sarcastic, what is truth? Is to get you thinking, what is it? Who is it? What is truth? That question is answered in the crucifixion of Christ in the coming chapters. And the resurrection. He is the truth. So it's to get the reader thinking. Who do you think is true? And that's what we must ask other people that we encounter in the world. Who do you think Jesus is? Do you know him as the Bible knows him? And not as Madonna presents him or anybody else? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People aren't just going to stumble into Jesus' kingdom. They're still blind. Just as blind as we once were. They suppress the truth and walk, walk in a world of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're, they're still stuck in their sins. They're still trapped in the devil's lies. And their only hope for rescue is if they hear the king's voice. As if they see that, that what he's done to remove their descendants and redeem and rescue them from the darkness will actually save them and, and bring them into a relationship with God. Will, will bring them into the kingdom. So spread Jesus' truth to others. Put it in an email. Write it on a card. Speak it over the phone. Have your neighbor over for coffee and draw it on a napkin. Whatever you got to do. The Lord hasn't returned yet. He's patient toward all, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So we must speak the truth 
And lastly, we must seek the king's power for our existence. We must seek the king's power for our existence. Or or trust the king's power for our existence. As Jesus says in our text, his kingdom is not of this world. Right? The power for our existence, therefore, cannot come from this world. It cannot come from worldly means like political maneuvers and brute force and guerrilla warfare and guns and threats and suicide bombers and clever schemes. Our power for existence must come from above where Jesus is seated now at the right hand of God. Our warfare functions at a completely different level, doesn't it? As Paul tells us, we we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And the armor of God is essentially Christ Himself as He's revealed in the Gospel. It's what we preach to ourselves. The, the truth of Christ is it's what we preach to ourselves in the gospel that clothes us with God's armor. It is God's armor. Even the weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are, are not of the, of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. To destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God in Christ. That's not to say that our Christian worldview and our faithfulness to Christ can't shape governing agencies or can't reform legislation that honors God and serves the public good. The Christians should work very hard to let the truth of Jesus Christ influence agencies of justice and law for the benefit of others in society. Our faith is not a private matter. Though we live in a world that's, continue, that, that's increasingly telling us it must be a private matter. It's not a private matter. But in terms of converting others, and in terms of sustaining faith, and in terms of building the church, our power doesn't come from the sword. It comes from the Savior. It doesn't come from civil authorities. It comes from a Christ. Civil authorities cannot remove the death sentence. They cannot redeem from sin, and they cannot rescue from Satan. Civil authorities can't even discern the truth about the problem we need rescuing from. Only Jesus can do all of these things. And His power enables us to set aside our violence and to set aside our lies to follow Him in self-sacrifice and truth. And we pray together.